0: So we gather this evening to worship the Lord of heaven and to celebrate the historical conception of the birth of the eternal Son of God uh, from the heaven to the earth. Not only entering into human history, but the eternal Son takes on humanity Himself. The Son becomes incarnate. You think about that word, incarnation. Uh, carne is uh, you know carne asada, delicioso. That's the extent of my Spanish carne, flesh, incarnation, it is the taking on of flesh, but more than mere human flesh, it's not like God slapped on a body gloves, uh, skin suit, and went surfing in it to keep him warm. He takes on full humanity. The eternal unlimited Son of God took on limited human nature that, that, that takes on shape and space and time. He is the Savior who tonight calls us in worship. That said, central to our worship is this book, the Holy Bible, which we bring out in our worship services, not as a prop. This is not a prop. It's, it's not something that you just sort of flaunt around on stage or whatever. This is not a prop. Oh, oh no, we bring it out so that we can sit on the edge of our seats to hear through the Word, to hear the God of this Word, to hear Christ specifically speak to His church. So to be clear, we come not to hear a pastor speak when we gather and a minister stands before us. Hopefully you don't come to hear a mere mortal. We come to hear the word contained in this book. And so the job of a minister presiding over the people of God who have gathered is to handle this book with great care and focus, making sure to proclaim the sacred text in its context. We read the text. Uh, uh, My job is to explain the text and proclaim the God of the text. And and as we do that, we hear Him speak to us. So all of that said, would you please open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Titus. While we call Titus a book, the Bible itself has 66 books, the books are different sorts of books. And Titus, in terms of what kind of a book it is, it is a letter, or what is known as an epistle. It was penned by the historic Sha'ul HaTarsi, who we popularly refer to in English as the Apostle Paul. Paul was a former skeptic and critic and former militant. Uh, in fact, historically, Sha'ul HaTarsi, uh, he would go gangster on Christians. He was, he was tied to street violence against Christians. He was a part of a persecution campaign in the first century to stamp out uh, followers of Jesus. And, of course, that persecution campaign went on for a few hundred years, all the way up till about the Edict of Milan, and it still continues in, in terms of global faith of those who identify as Christians. So Shaul HaTarsi, who we call the Apostle Paul, was a militant turned minister. And the book of Acts that you have in the New Testament, it gives us a history of his life and his ministry, but these other books like Titus, what we refer to as epistles these letters that come from Paul, they give us insight into like who the guy was Paul and his heart for the people. And so as you read his writings, you get, you get this feeling of, you know, who this person was. Um, I, I have lost my grandfather on both sides of the family, my grandmother on my dad's side. I still have remaining a grandmother on my mom's side and she takes, uh, cop- she t- took copious notes uh, throughout her life journaling and even writing in different Bibles and uh, in, in the times that I would go out of state to visit her I always loved reading her writing because there's a sense where you feel her heart coming through her writing you get to know I got to know Grandma Neva in ways that in, in person of course, you know but you get to read the writing and get a sense of what she cared about and her thoughts and what-have-you and so too as we come to the text and we read it in its context, we, we, we get to see what uh, this guy, the Apostle Paul, was like and what his heart was for the people. And then if you want to learn more about his historical life, you go to the book of Acts. So tonight we're in Titus, and as you get into Titus, if you draw your eyes at verse 5, you'll see him mention the island of Crete. And so Paul wrote this letter to uh, believers on the island of Crete, to a church there or multiple congregations there. And they were, on Crete and throughout the Roman Empire, experiencing persecution. And as I noted, uh, Paul once was a part of that. I I mean, it's radical to think that you could go from militant to minister. Um, I mean, in my own life, I was a, a militant of sorts before Jesus grabbed a hold of my life. And some of you know my testimony i'm not prepared to give it this evening but keep coming you'll hear it one of these days Uh, you know i went for my own militancy but never in terms of paul i mean like he was gangster guerrilla style Uh, this would be like going from the kkk to joining the black panthers or something you know you went from like one end of the spectrum uh hating people and trying to stamp them out to another end of the spectrum but of course the other end of the spectrum in this regard it's not radical like, like the Panthers, it's a, they're pacifists. They turn the other cheek when they're struck. They love their enemies. They lay down their lives in the mouths of lions in the great uh, 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 gladiator contests and coliseums of the, of the, of the Roman Empire. They, they die for the message that was given to them and the apostle paul of course would go on to give his life so you have a map in front of you so you can get historically situated to things you see crete there on the map crete was conquered by the roman empire in 69 bc and archaeologically we have when we dig through crete we can see evidence of the of the bloodshed that was done there by the roman empire when you hear the roman empire let me underscore empire uh, if, if, if that doesn't do it for you, think like Darth Vader, okay? Like, Rome is a dark shadow over the ancient world. They went around raping and pillaging and conquering and, and crushing. Uh, that, that's Roman history. Yeah, they made some cool coliseums and aqueducts and whatnot, but, but, you know, the blood that was shed for those things, when you put it in perspective, you know, was it worth it? You know, that that diamond might look pretty, but then when you think about, you know, whose fingers mined it and all the rest, you kind of go, ugh. You know, you see the darkness of it. Rome is a dark place. And part of seeing the darkness of Rome and thinking about the first century, when the Christ child is born, you see that he enters into the darkest corner of the earth and he takes it over by spreading his light. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, I'd like to read. You get an idea of the heart of the apostle for the people, not just his heart, but more importantly, what they believed and what they gave their lives for. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in hope of the eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Titus is a historical figure who is a leader of the congregations there in Crete, and so this is a personal letter that became a public letter in the first century, giving order to the church and answering different difficulties, challenges, and reminding the church of their, of their faith and what their faith was all about. I wanted to begin tonight's message. It might not seem obvious at, at first, but le- let me unpack it. I wanted to begin tonight's message on christmas eve with this text because it brings together some things that we have been studying as a church for our 2022 advent season you you might recall if you're part of the church if this is your first time here uh I'm going to explain it, so don't worry, and we are so glad that you are here. Um, in December, we began our Advent sermon series like we do every year. and We look at a different theme of, of Christmas with every year. And this year we focused on the doctrine of the virgin conception of the historical Christ Jesus our Savior. And this is the language of Titus in front of us, hence it's, it's fitting to begin with, Christ Jesus our Savior. So, we've been focusing for for a few weeks now on the doctrine of his conception. And hence, I I titled the sermon series, Conceiving Christmas, as a play on the words, uh, you know, conception and conceiving. So, we're trying to conceive what the conception is all about this Christmas. We began the sermon series by looking at the biblical story of redemption that, that the Bible tells. Though this book is made up of 66 different books, it is telling one overarching story. And it's a story of redemption and and love and God's sovereignty. And and as we're studying that story, what I was aiming to do with this series is to fit Christmas in that bigger story. If you walk into the middle of a movie, you're going to be lost if you don't know what's going on. And, and so too with Christmas. Christmas didn't happen in a vacuum. There is a lot that's going on when you step into the story of Christmas. And it began long before Mary and Joseph and Jesus and, and long before the Roman Empire and its dark tentacles that was all around the ancient world. And so what we've been doing then is tying the story into the greater story. Here in front of you, verse 2, if you draw your eyes at the text, he says, this was promised long ages ago. In other words, the story of Christmas isn't just a blip on the radar, it's actually a part of, a, of an unfolding saga. So in our first message for Advent, Conceiving Christmas, uh, we, we looked at that greater story so we could situate the story in this. And then in our second installment, we reflected on the importance of the virgin conception and how it ties in with history and divine promises. We looked at how this miracle provides an innocent sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And and this is a miraculous thing that, that God has done in the conception. It's a miraculous gift. And speaking of miracles, in these two messages we considered scientific evidence and rational reasons for believing in these things, specifically asexual reproduction of a child in real human history, fulfilling the ancient prophecies from long ago. That's the language of the text in front of us. This is a filament of something that happened ages ago that is then happening in the first century in the Christ child. Now tonight I want to offer you another installment and I'll do yet another one tomorrow at Christmas morning if you're here. And I want to keep unpacking the importance of the virgin conception. And tonight I want to focus in on how the virgin conception gives us a personal showing of God and hence the title of the message tonight, A Personal Showing Self-Revelation. In this message, I aim to show you that the virgin conception is critical to our faith because it uniquely brings by the Spirit the incarnation of God the Son, who reveals God the Father to humanity in the flesh. So here in verse 4, we see the tying together in the text of the Father and the Son. In the context of the promises long ago which culminate in Christmas, And, of course, they culminate as well in our celebration of Good Friday and Easter, which I'm looking forward to in 2023. But that said, as a matter of preliminaries, as we get into the message tonight and as we get into this letter of Titus and some other scriptures we'll explore tonight, it is important for Paul and for me standing before you this evening to make sure that when we speak of God, we're not just talking about any old God. So you have on your outline, uh, there are preliminaries, we're not just talking about any old God. You know, we have this English word God and lots of people use it and they have lots of different ideas when they invoke the word God. So it's important to uh, clarify what we mean when we say God uh, because there is a God who is and there's a God that people want and the two are often not the same. And I want to know the God who is. I don't want a figment of my own imagination God. I want to know what science and history and archaeology supports, uh, even further what sacred Scripture supports. So notice in sacred Scripture, verse 4, there is a phrase there, two words, common faith. There's a common faith, a common belief in, in, in who this God is and what this God has done. Contrary to skeptics who say the idea of a virgin conception is something that was copied from uh, other religions before its time or developed in subsequent generations from the time of Jesus, this just is not the case. It was the common faith of the eyewitnesses of the historical Jesus. The apostles proclaimed the Christ child was the promised seed who was divine and also human, specifically that the Christ child was the incarnate Son of God. So, in terms of who is God and what are we talking about, ancient believers, if you ask them who is God, they would say God is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And they say, how many gods is that? They say, well, no, one God in three persons. So, the the Son is God, the Father is God, the Spirit is God. But see, there are three distinct persons. So, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. Uh, Persons are whose? Uh, Beings are what? so we're dealing with a being who happens to have three who's who's father son and spirit and when we talk about christmas we're not talking about god incarnating we're talking more specifically about the son of god who incarnates himself as a baby by the spirit the the virgin is with child in a miraculous asexual reproduction you have one person the divine son who then becomes a human So, tonight, when we talk about God, this is what we're talking about. Tonight, when we read the Scripture, we let the Scripture show us why we believe these things. You see the Apostle Paul referring to the Savior as God. You see in the text in front of you, in verse 4, he speaks also of the Father as God. How can the Father be God and the Son be God? Well, we're not dealing with different gods. There's one God who eternally exists in three persons. This was the proclamation of the ancient church. Now, it'd be fine for people to say, well, that sounds crazy to me, I don't want to believe that. Well, you know, that's your prerogative to do. But at the end of the day, if you want to know who a person is, you must rely on them to tell you, as opposed to making it up for yourself. So if you wanted to get to know, say, me in this case, if we were relative strangers or whatever, the way that you would get to know me is by asking questions of me. Uh, You know, what do you like? What's the last movie you saw? You know, who are you married to? And you would learn about me through self-disclosure. That's how relationships work. You see someone and you go, they look interesting. I want to find out about them. Now, you can Google and read things about them. Uh, I have Yelp reviews, unfortunately, that are kind of stinky. But, you know, and and you can go, but hey, I know, Matt, that's not true of him. Yeah, we are in an age where people Yelp churches. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. But anyway, uh, you can Google someone, but do you really get to know them by Googling them? No, the best way to get to know someone is through self-disclosure. So the claim of the Christian church is just that, that we're not making up uh, God. We're, we're not sitting around going, hey, I got an idea. Let's make him three persons and uh, let's, let's uh, have a virgin conception. These aren't things that we made up. These are things that were disclosed by him to his people and passed on by common faith and with a track of evidence so that those who seek him will find him. There's a word here in the text that we read, proclamation. Proclamation. Proclamation translates a Greek word kerygma which was used of official messages that heralds would would get out in the ancient world They didn't have Twitter Man wouldn't that be nice to not have Twitter. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have social media if you wanted to find out something heralds would be on the corners and they would give kerygma which was the news and they would get out on the street corners and say I have news and you knew who the heralds were and they worked for the king and they were there to give official news. So when Paul uses this language here, he's drawing the readers to see, I have something official to say from the king on high. I'm telling you who he is and what he has done, and this message that comes to you is an official message. Christmas and the common faith are the official story from God explaining to us who he is and what he's doing in human history. Further, it's explaining to us who we are. You know, you'll meet people who say, I'm trying to find myself. You say, good luck with that. Uh, You know, uh, or you're trying to pursue and trying to figure out. Well, this book contains the answers to these things. And that said, I want you to turn from Titus. You can keep a little little, uh, finger in there or stick something in there because I want to come back to Titus. But I want to take you to the book of Genesis quickly because the book of Genesis reveals not only who God is, but who we are and where we come from and where we're going. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, if you go to the very first book of the Bible and you just kind of scan it with your eyes, Genesis 1 and 2, we read about the creation of the cosmos. In Genesis 2, the text then zooms in to talk more about humanity and to talk about the dignity of humanity, which really grounds uh, why we ought to love our neighbor as opposed to, say, cannibalize them or hate them or marginalize them because, as the text explains who we are, we've been made in the image of God. And that has shaped civilizations who, who believe in that. And so, so here we find out who we are. We're these uh, beings who are made in the image of this triune God. And here we, we find out about what He has made us for in the beginning account. He's made us to know Him and to know His love and to give our lives for His purposes. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, which you have referenced up here, um, in, in Genesis 3, 8, there's this line about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so the point here, before us, is that we were made to be in the presence of God. Uh, humans used to walk with God. They were made to be in His presence. You know, when you love someone, you want them in, in your presence. You, you want them to be with you. Uh, and around the holidays, that's often what makes the holidays rough, because there's people who you love who aren't with you. Um, and, 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 and some of them have chosen to be somewhere else, and, and that's a painful reality. When, when you love someone, you want to be with them. God is not a, a, you know, a calloused, mean ogre or distant dad. He created the world to know His love. He walks through the cool of the garden with them. Now, of course, a a problem comes, and Genesis chapter 3 explains that promise. Uh, the, The beginning humans reject God's love. It's the ultimate story of unrequited love. He gives them life. He gives them love. And they take that great gift, and they squander it, and they rebel against Him. And so then, in Genesis 3, we, we have this line about God walking in the cool of the garden, but as you keep reading, there's a sobering clause there, and it says, "...and a man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord." When you're hiding from someone, something's wrong. Say for playing a fun game, Marco Polo or, you know, hide and seek or whatever, but generally speaking, if you're hiding from someone, something's wrong. If you've got passcodes that, you know, you, mom and dad can't have, or your spouse can't have, usually when you're hiding, it's an indication that something is wrong. And in the account of Genesis 3, we see that something is wrong. It, it, we've rejected the love of God. We've rejected the life that He has given us. And why they're hiding is, is because of sin. Worse than sin causing us to hide, sin also causes us to hurt others and to hurl insults on God. And this is why the world is a mess. We were made for His presence, but we rejected His presence. We, humanity. And this leads us from seeing Him in the garden to not seeing Him anymore. This brings us to the next point on your outline. We move from presence to prohibition. Prohibition, of course, is the act of forbidding something, uh, particularly when it, it involves jurisprudence or law. We say this is a prohibition, meaning the law says, no, 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 you can't have that. That's a prohibition. If you have Genesis 3 in front of you, and I hope you do, draw your eyes at verse 23. We read that the Lord God sent them out from the garden to cultivate the ground which was taken. So he, verse 24, drove man out uh, from the east of the garden and he stationed cherubim. These are warrior angels. And they have flaming swords, verse 24 says, that turned in every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. This is, you know, way before the ring camera. You know, he's got angels there stationed, watching. No one's getting through this thing. And this isn't a a, a mean thing on the part of God. It's, in fact, a loving prohibition. He draws his presence away from them, not because he's drawing his love from them. He still loves them. The problem is, in the state of their rebellion, to be in his presence actually compromises their life because he's a holy God. He's a holy God. And so that, that rebellion, He's a just God, so that, that rebellion then creates a problem, being holy and just. We live in a day where we have corruption in our, in our legal system. You can know someone who can get you out. we got corrupt judges. We have all sorts of shenanigans. But God is a holy judge, and He's not going to let us off, off, off the hitch, okay? And so, so by pulling His presence back, He's choosing to be gracious to them so as to not throw the book at them. But it's still a sad reality that we go from seeing Him to not seeing Him. Hence on the outline, now you see me, now you don't. And now not seeing Him, you know, people will say, well, if there's a God, why can't I see Him? Well, He's, he's removed Himself from the creation because we rebelled against Him. Uh, secondly, He's also not a physical being. He's an immaterial being, and so by definition, He's also uh, you know he's not material, but he manifests himself, of course, in the creation. And in this, in, his, in this regard, he's he's pulled himself back from it, uh, n- not to be mean or petty, but to do so out of love. And now that we see him drawing his presence out, now we see the ripple effect in human history. If you are a history major, you know this. If you you don't even have to be a major, just take a semester in it. Human history is ugly. It's brutal. And that wasn't the ancient days. It's still alive today. Turn on the evening news. We have nations that are at war right now. And we have rumors of wars going on right now in the earth. Closer to home, we have uh, violence, senseless violence. Did you hear about last night? The Mall of America. The Mall of America. There was a major shooting that put the whole mall on lockdown just last night. Multiple gunshots broke out at 7.50 p.m. in an altercation involving anywhere from five to nine individuals that resulted in at least one of them dead and others injured. There was a bystander whose jacket was grazed with a bullet, went through, and thankfully it didn't hit them. And this, in fact, isn't the first lockdown of the mall in America uh, due to shots fired. Now, I emphasize mall in America because we think America, right? It's the land of the free. It's the home of the brave, you know. America, we, we got things dialed in. Now uh, We got people killing each other on, you know, the eve of Christmas Eve in the mall. And, and you go, man, that, that's just crazy. In a great country like this, that would be going on? Yeah, yeah. It's going on all around the world and it's going, and it's going on even here in our nation. And here's the thing, the problem isn't out there at the mall or out there in, uh, you know, Ukraine or out there in this nation or that nation. It's not out there, it's in here. And that's why it's out there because when you get squeezed, stuff comes out. It's really easy to be nice when people are being nice to you, right? But when they're not, what comes out? And if you're in tune with yourself, you know you got crazy stuff on the inside. You got dark stuff on the inside. We all do because we're a part of this fallen account that we're reading about in the book of Genesis. And, and, and in fact, when you start talking about sin and like everyone's a sinner so a lot of times this happens in terms of Christian faith. People, oh, you Christians, like, you think those people are bad. Uh, well, you know, you hate this particular group or whatever. We go, no, that, you're not listening. We think everyone's bad. It's not just those people. It's all of us. Like, we're all a mess. So it, it, I, and that brings me no joy to say it because I'm included in it. I'm a mess too. But we don't like being confronted with sin. We don't like hearing the truth. Fallen humans are a lot like Hollywood stars when uh, Ricky Gervais is hosting the the Golden Globes, roasting them. Have you seen this? No? Oh, get your Google on later. It's funny. Highly inappropriate, so that's not an endorsement from the church. But Ricky Gervais, if you don't know, he's a very snarky uh, comedian. A Brit, so he's got that quick Brit wit. And he hosted the 67th, 68th, and 69th Golden Globe Awards. And you thought that would be the end, but they invited him back for the 73rd. And you thought that would be the end, but they invited him yet back again for the 77th. But what the guy does is he just gets up in front of the Hollywood crowd and he roasts them. Okay. He had zingers on Mel Gibson or you're like, oh, he said that like that's lethal weapon, dude. You better run. Robert Downey Jr., Bruce Willis. He went after Bruce Willis, Angelina Jolie, and the list goes on. He goes for the jugular of the hypocrisy of Hollywood, mincing no words over controversial subjects, such as the death of Jeffrey Epstein, the college admission scandals, the middle-aged Leonardo DiCaprio's attraction to younger women, the Hollywood foreign press's lack of diversity. He goes after big corps like Amazon, Apple, Disney for their labor practices, He chastised the awardees who, you know, come up and they get their award and they talk on stage about their politics or whatever, and he he up front, he goes, no one wants to hear all that. Just come up here and get your award and say thanks to your agent and go sit down. We don't want to hear all that. You know, you go, man, this guy is just giving it to him. It's hilarious. But it's hilarious because it's not about us. You know, we like it when they're talking about someone else, those people. But what we need to see is that we're all caught up in this problem. We don't like it when people point out the problem. Uh, To remind me of another award show, it's like what we saw happen in the Slap Around the World, you heard about that one, when uh, comedian Chris Rock at the 94th Academy Awards was making little jokes, and, you know, he made a little joke about Will Smith's uh, wife, and the joke went a little something like this. Well, I'll quote it directly. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane, too. Can't wait to see it. All right. And then the audience broke out in laughter. It was a funny joke because her head was shaved. And I'm, I'm the brunt of ball jokes, so, you know, whatever, I can relate. Uh, I don't have alopecia though, but whatever. Anyway, so everyone's laughing, including her, her husband is laughing. The, cra- the camera pans and he's laughing, but her eyes roll. And then the camera pans on something else, and next thing you know, we see Will Smith take to the stage and he just slaps the mouth off of Chris Rock. And you go, whoa, did that happen? And if you saw it, you thought originally this was just like a Hollywood stage thing or whatever. Like, oh, that was funny. And Chris Rock was kind of dazed. And then Will Smith goes and sits down and you're like, maybe that was a Hollywood stunt. But then he starts yelling like a madman from his seat and you go, oh, dang, that was real. See, that's what we want to do when people point out or joke at us or hit on something that's true deep down we don't like that being exposed, we would much rather hide. And that's what we have in Genesis. We have people hiding. And that's the predicament that we have before us today. We have a problem. We have problems. And so when it is said to us that we have a problem or that we have sin, it's not intended to make a joke at our expense. It's actually so that we can hear the solution. If you don't know you have a disease, you don't know that you need a particular medicine for it. And in this case, the disease is sin and the medicine for it is the Savior who has come. And in terms of the story that I was sharing with you about Christmas didn't happen in a vacuum, here in Genesis, if you have chapter 3 open, look at verse 15, and there He promises to send one through the seed of a woman who would come and overthrow the kingdom of darkness. He uses a metaphor of bruising the head, a fatal blow that would be dealt to the kingdom of darkness through one who would come through the seed of a woman. Scholars refer to Genesis 13.7. Oh, I forgot to share with you the memes. Weren't these great? Uh, this one right here, Will Smith clearing up the question I had since childhood. Uh, now I know why, the, why paper beats rock. That was good. Uh, you know, everybody hates Chris. Anyway, uh, let's get on to the more serious things. Genesis 3.15 contains what scholars refer to as the Proto-Evangelion. This is actually the first mention of Christmas, and it comes at the very beginning which tells you God's in control of this thing. He's not like caught off guard, like, oh, I made humans, what are they doing down there? You know, and, and, and then he's got, oh, I got to come up with a solution. No, from the very beginning, he intended that he was going to solve our problem by sending one who's going to come through childbirth. And the significance of this is God coming into creation and, and actually taking it upon himself. Now, that's love. He didn't send a third party to clean up the mess. He's going to come into it himself and as we share that God's Father, Son, and Spirit, this means specifically that the Father will send the Son by the Spirit to step in to the situation. Now, before He does that, before Christmas, what we see, the next point on your outline, is we see shadows of what is to come. God gives permission for His people to see certain shadows about His arrival. And so as you're reading the ancient Hebrew Scriptures, you keep having these, these things like the proto in Genesis 3.15. That's a little foreshadowing of what is to come. For those of you who are English majors or majored in radio, television or film and you're interested in storytelling, you know that good storytelling always involves a, a foretelling, a foreshadowing, where you're given little pieces of it and, and you've got to really pay attention. And sometimes we don't pay attention, but the second time you watch the movie or read the book, you start picking up on it because you go, oh that's, oh, that's what that's about. Oh, that's what's going on there. And this is true of the Bible. The more you read it, you start to catch those genius literary foreshadows that are placed in the text for us. Here's one that came from the lips of the prophet Moses. Look at the text here, Deuteronomy 18. He talks about a prophet that God is going to raise up, who God is going to place His Word in, and and He's going to bring about, He's going to bring about Uh, the, 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 the ministry of God's people through this unique prophet who's going to be the voice of the Lord and have the divine name in him. This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christmas, a prophecy of one who will be born of a woman who will be raised up to be a great and unique prophet. In terms of the New Testament here, you have examples in the parentheses of various New Testament references that pick up on this. Acts 23, in the Gospel of John, in Matthew's Gospel, they pick up on this ancient prophecy and they go, look, he is the one who Moses said would come. Moses was also the one who recorded Genesis 3.15. Moses is telling us a story and give us a foreshadowing of it so that we read in the New Testament when Jesus comes, they're asking, are you the one? Are you the prophet? John 1.21, uh, John 1.45. We have found the one of whom Moses, the law and the prophets were written, the son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one. He's the one. He's the one. John 5, if you would believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And if you did believe his writings, you'll believe my words. He talked about me. I'm fulfilling that. Christmas didn't come in a vacuum. It's a part of this grander story. We have prophecies like uh, Micah chapter 5, a grand prophecy about the one who is to come who would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, of course, is as the prophet Micah said, it's little among the clans of Judah. But from you, one will go forth from me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago and from the days of eternity. That's the language of divinity. There's going to be one who's going to come who will be divine. And therefore he will give him up until time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. He will arise and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain. And at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. That's 500 years before Christmas. And I'm just giving you samples. We'd be here all night. There's, there's hundreds of them in the ancient prophets. And you go, wow, that's really cool. Like I'm getting these little glimpses of foreshadowing. One of the most significant ones is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It was a prophecy that there would be one who would be born of a virgin who would bear a son and his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. A couple of chapters later in Isaiah 9, we read, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And he ties it to the Davidic promise. Look at verse 7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, He's going to bring peace and He's going to establish and uphold justice and righteousness. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God is telling a story and He is fulfilling the story He has written. The Apostle Matthew, other writers in the New Testament, they pick up on Isaiah's language and Micah's language and they show that to the people, the people who witnessed Christmas to say, look, look at the evidence, we're not making this up. Hundreds of years beforehand, how could we be making this up? He's fulfilling it to the T speaking of the T, uh, we come to jesus and we also speaking of the T. would you go back to titus i want to take you into the second chapter of titus we were in titus to begin chapter one we jumped into genesis we had just a quick overview of some samples of prophecy so that you would see this point that is before you in terms of god giving these shadows and so in christ the shadow is made complete look at verse 11 of titus chapter 2 for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he calls him God, and gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, jealous for good de- zealous for good deeds, that these things that we speak and exhort and approve with authority let no one... Disregard them. These things are true. Don't dismiss them. Listen to what we have to say. The Christ has come. Uh, now you see Him. He made us to know His love and be in His presence. Now you don't. We made a mess out of things. He, he then gives us these foreshadows of, hey, don't worry, I'm going to solve this. I'm controlling human history. And then He brings it about in the Christ child who is born. And that is what verse 11 is talking about. The grace of God has appeared, where? In a manger in Bethlehem. To who? To a virgin. That's Micah. That's Isaiah. He's the great prophet. That's Deuteronomy. He's the one who will will bruise the head of the kingdom of darkness. That's Genesis. Oh wow, He's fulfilling all of this. And what is He doing? He's revealing to us Himself. I said at the beginning, if you want to get to know someone, you've got to ask them questions, you've got to let them speak. They share with you who they are, and you go, oh, okay, that's who you are, and you get to know them. Now, the Son, in His coming, He's doing more than revealing who He is, because, again, He's one being in three persons, and so He not only reveals His person, the person of the Son, but He also reveals the person of His Father. So, we have these cool sayings in the Gospel accounts. Let me show you a couple, just so you can orient yourself to them and jot them down, you can study them later. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says, No one knows the Son, except the father and no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal the son is saying i've come to reveal the father christmas we celebrate the son but in the son the son wants us to see his father i've come to show you my father now, a lot of times, when people read Father-Son language and they're new to the Bible, you might run the risk of thinking these are earthly metaphors that we're imposing on God. The earth has fathers and sons, and so these mortals writing these ancient holy books, you know, they projected that metaphor onto God. No, no, that's not the case. It's, it's, it's not a human metaphor. It's actually the other way around. You see, there are fathers and sons in the earth because there's a Father and Son in heaven who made us in His image. And and we're not projecting it this way, it's actually going the other way. And there is, in these relationships, a certain dynamic that reveals to us and displays to us unique things about God. Now, we live in a culture that's progressively more and more antagonistic towards things like gender, let alone to family, or to roles within family, like fathers and sons. But existentially, we all know, even if you are born into a really broken home and you never knew your father, your heart longs to know your father. If you, uh, you know, in terms of adoption, you long, you long to know your father. That's why there's websites out there for adopted children to try and find their fathers. They, they want to know. You want to know, who's my father? You want to have some connection to that. And, and, and even in adoption, you want to know who your adopted family is. You, you want to know. And there's something special about the bond between a father and a son, a a, a daughter and a mother, a daughter and a father, a son and a mother. There's something that's unique about that. And Jesus says, I want you to have what I have. You might have had busted up, failed, earthly fathers. I want to reveal to you the perfect father. And the intimacy that I have with him, I want to share that with you. I had surrogate mothers and fathers growing up because uh, I was born in a home where there was divorce and whatnot, and I had different families with intact uh, parents who invited me in, and, and, you know, friends who shared their parents with me. And you go, oh, man, this is just, there's something awesome about that, getting, getting, get, having a friend share their father with you. Here comes the son, and he says, I want you to know my father. The, 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 the child in the manger grows up and says, I'm here to show you the father. John 14, verse 7 through 12, If you would have known me, you would have known my Father also, for now on you know him and have seen him. The, the disciple Philip goes, Lord, show us the Father. Is it enough, is, is it enough for us? I, I want to see the Father. And Jesus said, bro, uh, sorry, that's technical Greek there, bro. Uh, hang out with my kids too much. Bro, have I been with you so long, and, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I have to say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also. And he talks then about going to the Father. This is where Christmas starts pointing to Good Friday because he's going to die and return to the Father. But before He returns to the Father, He's going to reveal, the Son is going to reveal the Father to humanity in human history. He wants us to see the Father. He wants you to see the Father. Uh, my, my dad is in town tonight from out of state. Uh, I love it when my dad's in town. My kids b- bounced off the wall all week. Is he coming today? Is he coming today? Is he coming today? Is he coming today? They, they, they love seeing their grandfather. You, you know this existentially, and if, if not, it's only because something happened that was tragic, but we know existentially what it is when your dad shows up at something. You ever get involved in youth sports, and the kid whose dad isn't at the game? And maybe you were that kid whose dad wasn't at the game, and you, you look around and you don't, you don't see your dad there. There's something powerful about being known by your father. I've, I have, I have seven kids. There's a bunch of them. They're always, you know, and, and so they're constantly doing this. Dad, look! Dad, look! Dad, look! Right? And they know when you're looking because you go, yeah, 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 show, show me, you know, and I'm, I'm working on the sermon or whatever, you know, show me. No, no, no. Dad, look. And I have to drop what I'm doing. I have to look. And there, that's it. Dad's watching. Now this means business. To be known by your father. And to know that the Christmas child who had come in fulfillment of this great story His heart for fallen humanity is, yes, know me and have life in me, but I want you to know my Father too. So, as we think about Christmas and we celebrate the Son, we also must celebrate that the Son is revealing the Father. Text after text after text makes this point. One final one, let me show you Luke chapter 10. At at, at the very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, Uh, the, the Spirit's involved in this as well, of course. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was very pleasing in your sight. And all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus, turning to the disciples, said to them, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you, many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see, and do not see them, and to hear the things that you hear, and do not hear them. I've I've come so that you would see the Father. And you know what? You're so blessed to see the Father. Because in in seeing Him, you, you not only get to know Him, but you also get to know the Son. And in getting to know the Son, you also get to know the Father. And guess what? You wouldn't know either of them if it wasn't by the Spirit, Luke 10, 21. It, it, it is by His, His will that you come to know the Son, and the Son shows you the Father, the Spirit is at work in this. This is why earlier I showed you the diagram to say, look, I want to make clear I'm not just talking about any old God here. I'm talking about this God who's Father, Son, and Spirit, and I need you to see how cool this is that the Son became a, a, a son of man in order that we sons of humanity can be reconciled with God the Father. Going back to the story, we rebelled against him. There's not a person in this room who hasn't rebelled against him. You say, I haven't sinned. You're lying right there. That's sin. We got you. You know, we've all all sinned. And that's okay. You're in good company. Uh, Because the one who has come is offering us not a finger going, you sinner, but that finger that we otherwise would think is waving at us actually gets impaled on a cross and bleeds out for us and dies in our place and says, Father, forgive them. And he teaches his followers to pray, right? Our Father, who art in heaven. He's he's saying to fallen humanity, though you've been driven from his presence, I'm bringing you back to paradise lost, and not just to a place, but a paternal relationship. That brings us to the final point for tonight's message. We move uh, now into this point about paternity. The person of the Son... Is offering us reconciliation with the Father. Uh, for sake of time, I won't have you turn anywhere. The final verses I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just show you, but hopefully you still have Titus open, so it's not much of a turn for me to draw your attention to Titus chapter 3. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 4. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, when did he appear? In, in the manger in Bethlehem. He saved us. Now, to the cross of Calvary. "...not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." Again, you see that Trinitarian language. Salvation comes by the Spirit, bringing us to the Son, and the Son brings us to the Father. And why does He do that? Because we were good boys and girls. No, we didn't have it coming. He says, not on the basis of deeds which we have done. It's a gift. If you did something and I gave you something in return for it, that's not a gift. If you're an employee and you show up at work, you get a paycheck, you earn that. If you're an athlete and you train, train, and train, and you show up at the day of competition and you you win, you earn that. You worked for that. But if you don't have it coming and someone gives it to you, that's what we call a gift. It's a gift. It's a bona fide gift. So that, verse 7, being justified by His grace, we will be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want to speak to you confidently so that those of you who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Though we're not saved because we did something, we're not saved because of works, In return for this great gift, you ought to respond with works and deed and generosity. Why would I ever hold back in light of all that He has done for me? And what He has done for me isn't just forgiving me of my sins and leaving me on my own to figure out the rest. He has brought me home to the Father that now I can be in a right relationship with His Father. Look at Galatians 4. When the fullness of time came, that's Christmas language, God sent forth His Son, Christmas language, born of a woman, Genesis 3, the one who's going to come through the woman, born under the law, so that that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive, what? Adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our heart, crying out, Abba, Father. Again, the Trinitarian ministry, the Spirit's in us crying out, He's your Dad. He's your Dad. Look at what the Son has done. Uh, In in our family, we've adopted multiple times. We have biological children, we have adoptive children. Uh, And it doesn't take a rocket scientist when we're together to figure out which ones are which. Uh, Because the ones, you know, with the big head, they're obviously from me. Uh, With the red and, you know, you go, oh, yeah, he looks like Matt or he looks like Erica or whatever. And sometimes we'll be at the store and, because there's so many of us, uh, strangers will say, are all of those yours? I go, no, I'm just borrowing some. They go, you are, you know, I have fun with it all the time. And Inevitably, someone will say something like, well, some of them don't look like you, you know. I say, yeah, I actually don't look like my father either. They go, oh, you don't? I go, yeah, no, my father's perfect and righteous. And I'm imperfect and unrighteous. My, my father's the creator of the universe. Uh, and and I, I can't do anything quite like that. My father accepted me while I was yet a sinner and sent his son for me. And they go, whoa, 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 you're trying to push your religion on me. Well, I mean, you brought it up, so... Uh, you know, I'm just telling you about my father. And he really is my father. He really has welcomed me in my home. And as a father who has adopted sons, uh, people will often ask, do you see a difference in them? Go, no, I don't. Um, I, I like the adopted ones better. No, uh, you know, no I don't. Uh, they're all my children. Like, What are you saying? That's, that's insane. If you know what it is to be welcomed in and to have that kind of love, you go, man, this is amazing. And, and what that is ultimately pointing to is the love of God and what God has done for us. So you have scripture after scripture saying this. And this is then giving us a theology to understand as this is a series, Conceiving Christmas, is trying to help us understand why is this whole virgin conception thing a big deal? Well, here's the big deal. He entered into a human family. The Son of God became a son of man so that sons of men could be reconciled to the Father. He didn't just shoot out of heaven and land on the earth like, you know, Iron Man or something and, you know, go around and destroy the devil and overcome things. No, he became a frail baby and he lived among us and he lived a life that we never had. And what is Galatians saying? He needed to do that. He needed to be born under the law. Why? Because we were born under the law and we broke the law. And we need someone who has come under the law and hasn't broken it so that we can have their account in exchange for ours if you're broke you don't you don't need help from your other broke friends you need a friend who has something that you don't have right and you need them to deposit that into your account you need some zell venmo action fast if you're broke you need someone who has what you don't have to give it to you and that's what has happened in christ the christ child grew up and perfectly obeyed it all and this plan for the Son of God to become a Son of Man, to adopt us in, wasn't a plan B, it was from the beginning. A final text for you to see, Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every sp- spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in Him. He, he, what? he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. It was grace to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. The message of Christianity isn't a message of you sinners, you're condemned, you're going to hell, God hates you. And yeah, God's righteousness burns against wickedness and we're wicked and we're sinners and... Uh, we we don't deserve we don't deserve life, let alone afterlife, or, or or to be in right relationship with Christ. But in His love, He has given that to us. Around the holidays, we think about being home for Christmas. I shared that my dad's in town, and you know and you think about the joy that it is to be home for Christmas, to have family around you. Uh, I, in fact, I was at the store, you know, picking up some stuff, and there were plates that had on them "Home for Christmas." You know we existentially get what it what it feels like to be home again and to be whole again to, to to be at the table with your father and and again maybe you had broken relationships with your parents right and but you still have those longings man I want to be home with my father I, I want to say hey dad look 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 and I want to show him and I want to see him smile and see that he's proud of me I want I want to have a mom and see that she's proud of me I want to have those feelings and Ultimately, these longings are a part of a fallen world. They're evidence in us that nothing in this world is going to satiate this. We need something else. We need something else. I'll close with an illustration that that has grabbed me over the years. It involves a a father and a son, and talking about being seen by your father. I don't know if it's folklore. I I tried to do some digging, and to the best of my knowledge, I can't see that it was. But either way, this story is a powerful one. Lou Little uh, is a historical figure. If you're a football buff, Lou Little was a a famous football player. He went went on to become a coach. He was a big deal as a coach. He was coaching football at Georgetown, and he had a player who was definitely third-rate on his college team. But it's a lot like the story of Rudy, where the guy just had a lot of heart, and he kept showing up to practice. he had to sit on the bench because, you know, he, you know, those were those the breaks. He kind of sucked at football, but he really wanted to play. Whatever, he had a position on the team. He showed up at all the practices and, you know, and played and played and rarely saw any action except in the last few minutes of a game that actually was already decided. Uh, one day, the, the news had, had come, so the account goes, that uh, the boy's father had died. And the youngster came to Coach Little and said, Coach, I want to ask something of you that would mean an awful lot to me. I want to start the game against Fordham. And I think this is what my father would have, would have wanted me to do. This is what my father would have liked so desperately for me to do. To, to you know, put me in the game, let me start against Fordham. I, I know I'm on the bench, I, you know, I know, and you knew my dad, and you know he's gone. Would you, would you start me in the game? Coach Little was hesitant for a moment. He said, okay, son. You'll start, but you're, you're only going to be in there for a play or two or something. You know, you're not quite good enough, and, and you and I both know it. But, you know, I, I know you're going through a hard spot or whatever, so you put him in the game. Well, so the story goes, the boy starts the game, and he played so good that Coach Little never took him out of the game. He, he, he inspired the team, actually, to victory in this game that, you know, they thought was settled, and they won the game. And back in the locker room, Coach Little embraced the young man, and he said, son, you were terrific. I mean, like, what got into you? You've never played that way before. What got into you? And the boy said, hey, coach, you remember how my father and I used to walk around university and before games and what, uh, arm in arm? The coach said, yeah. He said, well, you know, there was something that, you know, we didn't. I didn't, I didn't like talking about it or whatever because people made fun of me as a boy over it, but my dad was totally blind. So... I would have to walk Him everywhere arm-in-arm. Arm. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian coach and we believe in Jesus and Heaven. And the thought that I had today was this would be the first time my dad would a- ever see me play football. And just thinking of him being in Heaven and watching his son, you know, I, that, I just, I just, it just came out of me, coach. And you think of, of, of that as a closing illustration for us on this night. of The power for a son to be seen by, by a father. of of the power of a father to display himself through his sons and his children. And the message of Christmas, that not only we get the Son, but we get the Father by the Spirit because of what he's done for us. In response to the message tonight, we're going to come to the communion table. We have on the table in front of us a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. And they're just little symbols for us that we take and I invite... All of you to come and reflect on these things and in them uh, you, you pick them up and you go back to your seat and you think about what you've heard and think about who God is and what God has done. As you put the little cracker in your mouth, that was intended by Jesus to be a picture of his incarnation, him becoming flesh. And, and the little cup of juice is in- intended to be a picture of blood. Uh, humans have blood. If you don't have blood that's a big problem, you know, that's a big problem if you don't have blood. and So, it's a picture of life. It's a picture of the greater story, too. Communion wasn't just about Jesus, it was also about Moses and the Passover. And God delivering the ancient Israelites out of slavery. So, what Jesus is doing, even in that instance, he's pulling from the greater story. And friends, it's not just a story in days of old. It's a story that is never-ending, and you can be a part of it if you come to him and cry out for forgiveness. Uh, Father, I I heard the preacher tonight talking about I'm a sinner and I need you. And you just cry out to him and say, Father, forgive me. My sins are are many. I need your son who has died for me. And come to the table tonight. Landon's going to lead us in one song. And that gives you time to come forward and have communion and go back to your seat and eat it. And then our final song, we've got two songs planned to wind down the service. And our final song, in case Landon forgets to tell you, stand up and click that little electronic, uh, you know, uh, candle and we're going to dim the lights a little bit and we'll have a final Christmas song where we've got the light in front of us and we think about the scriptures we read tonight of the light coming into a dark world. The light revealing the Son, revealing the Father by the Spirit for us to know God that we wouldn't be bumbling in the dark wondering who our Father, our Creator is, but you can know Him and He offers you peace tonight. Let's pray, and then we'll come to the table. Father, we thank You for this night. We thank You that Your Son has come to reveal You. As we come to the table tonight, uh, we are mindful that even in the picture of a table, we have a picture of family. Families have tables. And families invite guests to the table. And so tonight here, we hear the invitation of Your Son calling us to dinner with You. That by Your Spirit, we can dine and commune with You. The virgin conception wasn't an abstract stunt in human history or some made-up myth uh, by men long ago to bamboozle people into believing a false religion, but it was You telling us who You are and what You have done for us. Father, we thank You. We thank You. We don't deserve this wonderful gift that You have given to us. Thank You for giving it. Thank You for coming at Christmas in the sending of Your Son who by the Spirit reveals Yourself to us. Receive these final songs of worship and as we come to the table, Lord, and reflect on You, I pray that Your Spirit would move and draw us to have deep thoughts on on this important night. In Jesus' name, Amen.